0: Good morning, church. Uh, Glad to have you all here with us. Um, I talked to Mike Miller this morning. Mike is leading. I was up here last week and mentioned uh, Phil having left already for South Carolina. Uh, I was talking to Mike this morning. Mike's leading our group from here, going down there, I believe, the second week of February? Yes. Yes. Oh, oh, there you are. Yeah. Okay. Uh, That is a trip, again, uh, that is... A great opportunity to be able to go and serve, if for no other reason, the cost is time. It's just you getting in a car and going. Uh, The cost is gas to get down there, food to get down there. That's about it. So uh, it's a great opportunity to serve. I was fortunate enough to be able to go a couple years ago when we went to the Birmingham area. Um, Again, it is work that just about anybody can do. Uh, there will be real Mennonite girls there. <laughs> no offense to Mennonite girls here. <laughs> but in their Mennonites and Amish, uh, working side by side with them. And they will be up on the roof beside you, roofing if that's what you're doing. They'll be on the ground pulling weeds beside you if that's what you're doing. Uh, again, it's, it's a wide variety of work that Anybody can do. Uh, MDS does have a little more restriction on whether or not kids can go, Uh, but no matter what your skill level is, there is something for you to do. So uh, if you want to get out of this beautiful weather for a week or so, in a couple of weeks here, I'd encourage you to talk to Mike and uh, set that up with him that, that you would go along with them, or at least ask him more questions if you have them. Um, And again, I'd encourage you to stay after today for Sunday school. I had a chance to talk with these gentlemen last night, and I am much more excited right now about going than I was 12 hours ago, because we had a chance to actually hear a little bit more about it, and uh, it's just a neat, neat opportunity, especially to be able to do it alongside your family. So I would encourage you to to keep that in mind. Let's pray, and then we'll read uh, where Chris will be preaching to us from this morning. Father God, we are grateful and thankful for your Son. Father, we just took basically a month and focused on Christmas and the arrival of your Son that we just take time to celebrate. We thank you, God, for bridging that gap between uh, your holy self and our sin, which you can't even look upon. We're thankful, Father, that uh, you bridged that gap with Jesus and you uh, did every, have done everything you can to restore that relationship. Thank you, God, that uh, your plans and your ways are perfect, uh, that things that we encounter in our, in our day-to-day lives, uh, we can trust that you uh, have placed there or have allowed. Thankful God that, as we just sang, your son is enough for us. Everything that we need is in you. We're thankful, God, that that you've provided that for us. Thank you, God, that you've given us your word that gives us your truth and your love, your direction. Thank you, God, that you haven't just left us on our own, but you have uh, given us the Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that you would Help us as we look for you in our lives every day, in every moment, in everything that's going on. Father, we uh, have needs in our our church body. Uh, We have those who are uh, hurting. We pray for the French family, having lost Mike's mom. We pray, God, that you would just give them comfort at this time. Uh, Father, we pray that you would continue to be with those who struggle with chronic pain. Uh, We continue to pray, God, for those who hurting emotionally. We continue to lift up our brothers and sisters that we've been able to send out from here. Pray that you'd be with the Baldwins and Coons, Atila and Tamara, uh, Dave and Josie. Thank you for the opportunity. We had to see a few of those people here recently and pray God that you continue to guide them and bless them in their ministry. We pray that you would continue to meet our church financial needs so that we can help those people continue to meet their financial needs as well. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to pray alongside them and work alongside them. We thank you, God, for the opportunities you've given us uh, to serve our brothers and sisters throughout the U.S. with MDS and with this opportunity to go to Show Me. We thank you, God, that you have placed these opportunities in front of us and pray that we would be obedient if we're feeling that call to follow, just that we would listen and obey what your call is for us. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. your name, Amen. We're going to read from 2 Peter, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities you will never fall for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our lord and savior jesus christ
1: good morning again Ooh. I have the privilege uh, of sharing the first message of the new year again this year, Uh, so I hope that gets us started out on the right foot. Um, I'm excited because uh, the quiz team is going to start studying the book of 2 Peter here in the next week, Uh, so hence we are in 2 Peter this morning. Uh, So we are doing kind of a weird thing in quizzing where we're studying 2 Peter before we study 1 Peter. Uh, So just because of how the uh, verses work out and the numbers. Uh, So that's where we're going to start this morning. I'm hoping uh, that each time that I preach then coming forward, we can just continue on in 2 Peter instead of having sort of random uh, things come up. So 2 Peter is where we're going to be when I'm up here for the foreseeable future. Uh, This uh, book here, 2 Peter, is is Peter's second letter to the same group of people. Uh, So to understand what's happening, we'll have to take a second to look sort of at the background. And our clue to the audience of this letter comes from uh, chapter 3, verse 1. So if you look there, it says this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Makes it pretty obvious. Uh, this verse tells us that both first and second Peter were probably written to the same group of people, but additionally, that term beloved is also important because Beloved in the New Testament is only ever used to describe people who have already become believers in Jesus Christ. So these are already people who have their faith in Jesus Christ, and that's important as we go forward and see what the rest of the letter has to say. Uh, so to see exactly who those believers are, we'll have to go back to 1 Peter. Uh, so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That makes it very clear, doesn't it? (laughs) So who are these people? Who are these elect exiles of the dispersion in all of these places that we probably haven't heard most of? Uh, Peter addresses this group of people, and the phrase that he used to describe them is the elect exiles of the dispersion. So, if we were studying 1 Peter this morning, which we may do later, I would sort of expand on exactly what that phrase means. But for this morning, since we're in 2 Peter, I'm just going to summarize it for us. So, these are people who are part of churches that are scattered around Asia Minor. Uh, The places mentioned there are not cities, but they are rather regions or provinces uh, that are in modern day Turkey. So, this is most of modern day Turkey that he's writing to. And his intention with this letter was to have it circulate throughout that whole area. So, it wasn't to a specific church by this group of churches in all of modern-day Turkey that the letter was intended to circulate around to so all of these people can hear what Peter has to say. Um, and they were established after Christians dispersed from Jerusalem following uh, Peter's martyrdom. So after Peter was executed, there was a lot of persecution in Jerusalem, and these Christians sort of dispersed and uh, established churches in other parts of the known world. Um, So they're not only exiles in sort of the physical sense of of where they live on this earth, but also they're spiritual exiles in the sense that their true citizenship, because they are believers, is in heaven and not on earth. Uh, So that word exile sort of has a double meaning there. Uh, And they are believers, as we've said. They're strangers in this world that are waiting Christ's return to take them home to their true home. Uh, Peter is probably writing to these folks from prison in Rome. Uh, And his first letter was likely just written before the great fire in Rome under uh, the rule of Nero. And the main theme of that letter was to encourage these believers to endure suffering and persecution as Christ did and as Peter is currently doing. Uh, Peter encouraged them in that letter uh, with perseverance and told them that they were supposed to um, persevere through that suffering. Uh, And Peter, because he's writing from prison, and not only is he writing from prison, but he's just basically awaiting his execution... He's going to relate really well to these people's suffering. So that was his first letter, when he encourages them to just push through. Uh, and then about three years later, Peter writes this letter to us, second Peter. Same group of people, second letter. But this time, his purpose is made clear back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. It says this, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So, those qualities that he's referring to are what we're going to look at this morning. But Peter knows that he's about to die. He knows that the putting off of his body is near, as he said. And he, like the other apostles, would not be around forever to preach. Uh, So the eyewitnesses of Christ, uh, the ones who are tasked with making disciples by Christ, are going to have to pass the torch before they leave this world. So this is is Peter's intention with this letter. He tries to lay out some key ideas so that when he's gone, both these believers and all future believers can still learn and understand the truth that he's been telling these people. Uh, And thanks be to God that they're still here 2,000 years later for us to read. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the truths that Peter's referring to. I'm going to start in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. At the beginning here, if you're following along in the ESV, you're going to notice something, or maybe you didn't notice something, that Peter identifies himself not as Simon Peter, but as Simeon Peter. Uh, and this is not a typo. Uh, this is intentional, because Simeon is actually the Hebrew way of spelling Simon, Uh, So, some people would use this as proof that Peter really did write this letter. So, in other words, if someone was going to forge this letter, they probably would have used the word Simon Peter, because that's how most people in this area, especially the Gentiles, knew him. So, the fact that he uses his original Palestinian name, or the spelling of it, Simeon, kind of signals to us that this is really Peter who's writing this letter, which in 1 Peter, he used the regular Simon Peter. So, Uh, There's some debate about that, but I think this is proof that that this really came from Peter, especially considering that he's writing to Gentiles, who would mostly recognize him as Simon Peter. Uh, So, uh, as we go on here, he not only uh, identifies himself with that, but he goes on uh, and he says, uh, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he says not only that he's an apostle, but also that he is a servant, and the Greek word here is doulos, servant, which actually means slave, uh, more so than servant. And so he's not only an eyewitness to Christ and a messenger of Christ, but he's a slave of Christ. Uh, and in John uh, chapter 21, uh, we can see a little bit more what that means, uh, because Peter is willing to do whatever his master commands of him. So he is a slave to Christ. And in John chapter 21, Jesus commands Peter to do this. He commands him to do three things. He says, feed my lambs. He says, tend my sheep. And he says, feed my sheep. Uh, sort of the three times that Peter, that, that Christ asked Peter if he loves him, and he says, yes. And so Jesus' answer to him is, okay, fine, then feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Uh, and in other words, what, what Jesus is saying to him is that he's supposed to be a shepherd to Christ's flock. He's supposed to nourish them and guide them with Christ's word, uh, just as Christ, the good shepherd, uh, did himself. So he's referring to himself, ...as a slave, and that's sort of reminiscent also of Paul's attitude, right? Paul refers to himself as a slave, and not only does he refer to himself as that... ...but he refers to all believers as no longer slaves to sin... ...but slaves to righteousness, and therefore slaves to Christ. Uh, So let me ask you this question. Do you consider yourself a slave of Christ? Sort of a lot of negative negative connotation with the word slave in our world. Uh, But do you consider yourself a slave to Christ... How would your life look different if you thought of Christ as your master in addition to your Savior? We're called to serve Christ, not just thank him. The second part of verse 1 then addresses those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. This is also significant because Peter is a Jew. Not only is he a Jew, but he's also an uh, an apostle. And he's writing mainly to Gentiles. So, He states that his faith and the faith of his readers are of equal standing, even though he's a Jew and he's an apostle. And and Peter had to really learn this truth himself, too. Back in Acts chapter 10, uh, we see the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 had fallen only on Jews on the day of Pentecost. Uh, And then in chapter 10, God gives Peter a vision that basically concludes with these words What God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter learns from this vision that God, through Christ, has granted forgiveness of sins to anyone who believes in Christ, regardless of their nationality. He then shares the good news in Caesarea and witnesses the Holy Spirit falling on Gentiles as well, who believe the gospel of Christ. Later, as a result, he has to report back to the church in Jerusalem to convince them that this really did happen. The Holy Spirit really did fall on Gentiles as well as the Jews, and so he defends Uh, The salvation of all who believe, both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, So he says our faith is of equal standing with Peter. And our faith today is also of equal standing with Peter's because the object of our faith is equal with Peter's, Jesus Christ. The end uh, of verse 1 demonstrates this. It says, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Christ's righteousness that causes our good standing with God. And that is what makes us all equal. Peter also makes a point to identify that Jesus Christ is both God and Savior, making it clear the divinity of Christ. It is because Jesus is God that he can be our righteous Savior. There's a lot packed in here to this sort of seemingly simple greeting, uh, but Peter still isn't done, because in verse 2 he goes on to say, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This greeting is slightly different than Peter's greeting in his first letter. In the first letter, he stops after saying, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. But this time, he adds, In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And based on the rest of this letter, I think this is an int- intentional addition. Uh, Peter is aware of false prophets and teachers who are trying to infiltrate the church and spread heresies about Christ. And these, these were people who claimed to have some sort of true or secret knowledge About God that no one else had, yet they exhibited immoral behavior and they started to lead people astray. So the Greek word here for knowledge is epignosis, which means precise or correct knowledge. And it was probably a word that those false teachers commonly used to try and coerce people away from Christ. And I think Peter intentionally uses this buzzword for knowledge to combat those teachings. He's telling us what the true and correct knowledge actually is. Uh, And then he goes on and says grace and peace are benefits that Christ offers us and they will grow or be multiplied as our knowledge of Christ grows. The better we understand precisely and correctly who Christ is, the more we will experience and understand his grace and peace in our lives. Peter continues with the importance of knowledge in verses 3 and 4. says this, and this is a very long uh, sentence here. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire don't you love how scripture always gives us these really complicated run-on sentences that are really hard to understand <clears throat> there's so many of them uh, so we have to break it down. So let's, let's break this one down to try and figure out exactly what it's saying. And I think that uh, as we break it down, we'll see that it results in five main statements. So for you note-takers, this section is for you. Each of those five statements uh, kind of come from a phrase that's separated by a comma in that really long sentence. So we're going to start with the first half of verse 3 before the first comma there. It says, His divine power has granted to us all that pertains to life and godliness. So the first statement here for your notes, Christ's power sustains us. Christ's power sustains us. Life refers to our very being, the existence of our body and soul. And godliness refers to having a reverence or respect for God. Our dependence on God is referenced here and is reminiscent of the words by both Christ and Moses when he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The author of Hebrews also says this about Christ in chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ's power sustains us. Second half of verse 3, then, next uh, between the commas, says this. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So here's our second statement. Knowledge of Christ leads to change. Knowledge of, knowledge of Christ leads to change. We see here that it is our knowledge of Christ that causes his power to grant us what we need. This is the same knowledge that we spoke of earlier, the pre, pre, precise and correct knowledge of Christ. That knowledge is what leads to change. It is the saving knowledge of faith. This knowledge is given, to, given by him who called us. Jesus reminds us of this truth in John chapter 6, six forty four. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. God the Father, in his grace, awakens our heart and soul and mind, showing us the true knowledge of Christ. And that leads to salvation through faith. This knowledge is not an accumulation of mere intellectual facts. It leads to action in the form of moral uprightness or righteousness. It leads to growth. Though we are not yet made perfect, we strive to imitate the righteousness of Christ. Knowledge of Christ leads to change. Moving on to verse 4, first part there. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Here's a third statement Christ's righteousness grants us valuable promises. Christ's righteousness grants us valuable promises. So, what are these promises? Certainly, Christ has accomplished many things for us. We're forgiven of our sins. We are adopted in the family of God. We are called Abraham's descendants. We are given Christ's righteousness. We are given the Holy Spirit. However, I think Peter is probably referring here to future promises, such as Christ's return and his reign as king, uh, such as eternal life and the new heavens and the new earth. These are promises that we look forward to in the future, and they're promises of our hope to be in his presence again. Christ's righteousness grants us these valuable promises. Moving on in verse 4. It says, So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Fourth statement. Christ's promises transform us. Not only has he granted us them, but they transform us. <clears throat> in the end, we will be made perfect. Perfect. We will be totally transformed in the image of Christ. Not that we will be Christ or share in his divinity in any way, but that we will be like Christ, sharing in the eternal glory and the presence of God. As we heard last week from Wayne, Jesus prays for this reality in John chapter 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, believers, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me even before the foundation of the world. His promises complete our transformation in the future, but the process begins at the moment of our salvation. We are slowly being molded and shaped into the image of Christ through sanctification. Jesus also prays for this reality in his prayer. He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Again, here we have this idea of transformational knowledge. It's not just knowledge, but it's knowledge that changes us. The more we understand God's word, or the truth about Christ, the precise and correct knowledge about Christ, the more we are transformed or sanctified. It's a long process, but it already has begun in our lives. Christ's promises transform us. The end of verse 4 gives us our fifth statement. The verse says having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. so Here's our fifth statement this morning. Christ has overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world. His power, given to us through the Holy Spirit, allows us to remain in this world, yet escape the corruption of it. So it enables us to live godly lives and grow in our knowledge of Christ, which ultimately transforms our hearts and reminds us to be more like him. The corruption of this world, caused by man's sinful desire, is tempting. But we've been given the power to resist it and to choose righteousness. After speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, Jesus says these words to his disciples. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble, But take heart, I have overcome the world. Though it will not always be easy, Christ reminds us that He has been victorious for us. He has conquered sin, death, and the devil, and He will rescue us from this fallen world. Christ has overcome the world, our fifth statement. So, for those of you who are following along with these five statements, which of these five truths do you need to become more aware of this morning? Peter explains that they should motivate us toward action. Verse 5 begins with, For this very reason. So in other words, because Christ's power sustains us, because the knowledge of Christ leads to change, because Christ's righteousness grants us valuable promises, because Christ's promises transform us, because Christ has overcome the world, we ought to live in such a way that proves that those things actually matter. Look at verses 5 to 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. All of those five statements that we just went over should lead us to change in our lives that results in this list of things. Uh, So it's very important that we see here, though, that we are saved by faith alone. It is after salvation that we are to supplement our faith with these things. Those things do not make our faith better. It is the other way around. Our faith, or our correct knowledge of Christ, is what allows the Holy Spirit to come in and produce these attributes of God within us. This is why in Galatians, a similar list is referred to as the fruits of the Spirit, which are well known. Now, this is a very comparable list, so if you go back and you look at those, they're going to be very similar uh, because they use different words, but many of them have the same meaning. Uh, And this is not of our doing, but of the Spirit's doing. So we supplement our faith by cooperating with the Holy Spirit to produce His fruit in us. And this is where Peter continues to combat the false teachers, communicating that knowledge on its own is of no value. True knowledge of Christ will lead to Christ-likeness expressed in this world through morality and good deeds. And the book of James especially echoes this idea, where, this idea where he talks about faith having to be accompanied by deeds. Otherwise, it is dead, as he says. Here we have the seven fruits of the Spirit listed. The seven that are listed here. Uh, and that phrase, make every effort to add, clearly implies active cooperation on our part. This is not something that just happens to us. We have to produce something in ourselves along with the help of the Holy Spirit uh, in order to have them. So there's an active cooperation on both parts, us and the Holy Spirit. And as we read through this list, you're going to notice that they sort of build on each other. So they work from inward attributes to outward attributes. The first is virtue or moral uprightness. Uh, The same word uh, is used of Christ in verse 3 except it's translated there as excellence. But excellence and virtue are actually the same word translated differently. Uh, So we learn the difference between right and wrong, and through the Word of God, we gain a better understanding of specifically what God requires of us. Uh, We learn how we should behave. Uh, And the Spirit convicts us and teaches us these things as we study the Word. Virtue is the most basic attribute, difference between right and wrong. After we understand the difference between right and wrong, we're to add knowledge. This is not the knowledge that we saw earlier. This is a different Greek word. Uh, It's not referring to correctness or preciseness. It's a different word that means more wisdom or discernment. So to our virtue, we are to add this kind of knowledge, wisdom or discernment. And with it, we can evaluate our situation, and we can make a right decision based on our virtue. So we use our knowledge, along with our virtue, make right decisions so we begin with virtue we add knowledge or the ability to discern and then we move on to self-control when we have the ability to perceive right and wrong and we make a correct decision we are to control ourselves from intentionally making the wrong decision and so we uh, because of temptation that is difficult because we are sinful that is difficult so we are to add self-control to our virtue, and our knowledge. Uh, and this is not merely just a restraint from physically doing bad things or wrong things or saying something wrong, uh, but it refers to a deeper mastery of controlling our sinful desires. So, not just controlling what we do, but controlling what we desire. And that kind of self control is a little bit more difficult. Uh, it's certainly no small task uh, and can only be accomplished by the blood of Christ, which, as the writer of Hebrews says, cleanses even our consciences, uh, which is what the blood of bulls and goats, or the old sacrificial system, could not do. It could not cleanse our consciences, but the blood of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, can cleanse our consciences and give us self-control. Self-control is added to our knowledge. After self-control, self-control leads to steadfastness, or perseverance. When we're able to continue making right decisions and having right attitudes while enduring suffering or persecution, steadfastness gets added. We persevere knowing that God is in control and trusting that he is ultimately working things together for our good, as it says in Romans chapter 8. I think this is also what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's talking about being steadfast here. He's not talking about being able to get an A on a test, or drive through a snowstorm. Okay, he's talking about steadfastness. Do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Excuses won't cut it. This is not a I don't feel like it today sort of quality. When we have virtue and knowledge, and then self-control, we are equipped to be steadfast. But it takes a bit of extra effort, especially on certain days. We are called to be steadfast. Steadfastness, then, after that is added, we see godliness. This is the same godliness that we saw in verse 3, meaning reverence or respect for God uh, in reference to Christ. This is where the list of attributes starts to move from inward realities to outward realities. We must have a right relationship with God, flowing from a reverence and respect for him. If we are to be able to be steadfast in our faith through suffering then it communicates that our relationship with him is right. We understand who he is and the power that we possesses, and we are devoted to him. So our steadfastness produces godliness. Not only are we to have a right relationship with God, but we are also to have a right relationship with fellow believers. And so to godliness, we are to add brotherly affection. If we truly love God, then we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 19-21 through 21 says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, does, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. These are harsh words for those who are not showing brotherly affection. You know what phrase I'm sick of hearing, especially in the church? I love them, but I don't like them. We've all said it, right? I've said it. I love them, but I don't like them. I don't think that this is the kind of love we've been called to, friends. I think that kind of love is false and divisive. We've been called to love one another and be reconciled with one another. That means we are to like them. We are to be glad that they are part of the body of Christ. Our pride makes that difficult sometimes, doesn't it? But that is the kind of brotherly affection that we are called to. We are called to love them and like them and be glad that they're in the body of Christ so that we can build them up so that together we can accomplish Christ's work. And it's only by cooperating with the Spirit that it can be done. We move from brotherly affection then to love. Love is appropriately at the end of this list because I think it's the most outward attribute. This is the agape love, the love that defines God Himself. God is love. As the Spirit continues working in our lives, we are to look more and more like Christ, revealing God to the world. And the best way that we do that is by exhibiting and communicating His love for them. This love results in action, it is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations by telling them about God's love for them that he demonstrated in the cross of Christ. God showed his love by an action, and we are called to do the same. 1 John tells us not to love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We must show God's love to this world, not just claim to love them. So there's our second list, our list of seven fruits of the Spirit, seven qualities. Which of those are apparent in your life right now? Which ones are less obvious? I would encourage you to take some time this week to identify areas in which you could be cooperating with the Spirit and producing these fruits a little bit more intentionally. Peter goes on to tell us what happens when we do possess these qualities in verse 8. 2 Peter 1:8 says this For if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ I think a very key word here is increasing uh, We don't just obtain them in full upon salvation uh, the spirit begins his work as we've said uh, and then continues to develop those things as we grow This doesn't mean that we will always display these qualities perfectly we're still sinners. But we mess up, and then, just because we fall short sometimes, it doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. Rather, our lives should trend in the direction of Christlikeness. It should be increasing amidst all of these ups and downs. Kind of like the stock market, if you think about it. The, uh, when I was younger, I was in Boy Scouts, and I was taking a finance merit badge of some sort. And so I was talking to a financial advisor, and he was talking to me about the stock market, and he said... Think about the stock market like a man traveling up a mountain with a yo-yo. And then he said, don't watch the yo-yo. In other words, don't overreact to these small missteps that happen. Uh, and this relates, I think, to what we see here with these qualities being represented in our lives. Uh, don't watch the yo-yo. Don't overreact to missteps in your life. Repent of sins that are committed. Receive forgiveness. Receive forgiveness. continue up the mountain. Don't watch the yo-yo. I think, unfortunately, that we often misidentify what good fruit is. Our effectiveness and fruitfulness in the Christian life is measured by the extent to which we are conformed into the image of Christ, being more like him now than we were before, increasing in these qualities. But sometimes we misidentify what that fruit looks like. We think Uh, that it is the deeds themselves rather than the purpose behind the deeds. So to be fruitful, our deeds must be done in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they must point people to Christ and to the love of God. As we are conformed into the image of Christ, our lives will more accurately reflect who God is, and that is what fruit is. When Sarah and I were living out at Miracle Camp, Uh, We had the opportunity to host three of Sarah's friends from Basque Country uh, over the summers. And we were able to share the gospel with all of them, and they were able to hear the gospel when they attended chapel at Miracle Camp. uh, And we had some good conversations. During one of those conversations, it was made clear that uh, this friend of hers really thought that the purpose of becoming a Christian was to become a better person, for Christ to make you better. Uh, And then she talked about how she knew plenty of people that were doing really great things in the world that weren't Christians, uh, and many of them were even more humanitarian than most Christians. So if those people, and if she, could do all of those things without Christ, then why become a Christian? And you know what? She's right. If bearing fruit just means making the world a better place, she doesn't need Christ. But thankfully, our God is much bigger than that. Being a Christian is not about letting God make you good. It is about you making the goodness of God known. Being a Christian is not about letting God make you good. It is about you making the goodness of God known. This is why someone can be considered a great moral person by the world, but unfruitful in the eyes of God. And this leads us to verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Whoever lacks these qualities, whoever is unfruitful, is blind. Blind and unfruitful are words that describe unbelievers, those who are not saved. Jesus talks about the same unfruitfulness in John chapter 15, in the section about the vine and the branches. In verses 5 and 6 of that chapter, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing fruitful, is what he's saying. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And then in verse 8 of that same chapter, Jesus says this, By this my Father is glorified, That you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We prove that we are truly saved by allowing the Holy Spirit to produce God's fruit in us. So here's the question. Are you being fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you making the goodness of God known, or are you settling for good morality? Are you making the goodness of God known, or are you settling for good morality? Peter goes on and says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Verse 10. This is what I call the prove it verse. Okay, Confirming your calling and election doesn't mean that you need to question your salvation. Okay, That's not what Peter is saying here. You don't need to start waking up every morning and praying the sinner's prayer just to make sure that you're saved. Now, certainly there's an appropriate time for self-evaluation and self-reflection and making sure that you are truly saved. Certainly there's a time for that. But I don't think that's what Peter's saying here. If you've recognized your sinfulness and you've repented of it and you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been called and elected. No questions asked. This verse is not commanding us to do it again and again. It's calling us to prove it. Peter is calling us to show the world that our salvation is true by exhibiting these qualities in such a way that God is glorified. Jesus also called us to prove it in John 15. He said, the the verse that we read earlier, verse 8, he says we are to prove to be his disciples by bearing fruit, implying that if we aren't bearing fruit, we aren't really his disciples. Since it is the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit that produces fruit, a lack of fruit shows a lack of the Spirit, and therefore, a lack of salvation. The end of verse 10 says this, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you have these qualities, it shows that you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you will never fall. That is, you will not lose your salvation. The Spirit will continue to work in you, increasing these qualities transforming you into the image of Christ until the day that he returns and you are made perfect. Paul echoes this thought in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God finishes what he starts. We have already read that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We can be confident in God's power. And so we must continue to prove that it's true. We must exhibit these qualities in such a way that proves that it's true. We must bear fruit. We're going to conclude this morning with verse 11. In verse 11, Peter reminds us of our hope. He says, For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God does not abandon us. After he calls us to himself, he ensures through the Holy Spirit that we will find our way there, molding us and shaping us along the way until one day we are made perfect, able to live in his presence for eternity. God does not abandon us, and I pray that this hope will continue Grow in you as your knowledge of Christ grows. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are good to us, and we are thankful for that. We're thankful that you've called us to yourself, that you continue to work in us, that you've placed your spirit in us to produce this fruit. God, I pray that we would continue cooperating with you uh, as we grow forward as we grow in our maturity, as we continue to learn. God, I pray that you would continue to be the Lord of our lives, that we would see you as our master in addition to our Savior, that we would be willing to lay our lives down and serve you for the good of your people and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let that uh, song be our prayer this morning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in our knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Have a great day. Thanks for coming this morning. Don't forget to stick around for Sunday school. Hear from these fellows from Show Me Christian Youth Home. Uh, We'll plan on meeting back here around 11 o'clock for that. Uh, And there is no child care during that section, so just bring your kids with you, and they can hear about it too and get excited about it with the rest of us. Have a great day.